Nuclear decommissioning nightmares. Remember when we thought that shutting down a nuclear power reactor meant that the worst would be over? Nuh-uh. Because once the thing is shut down, then there's the decommissioning process, especially figuring out what to do with the highly radioactive plutonium-contaminated spent fuel rods. Take San Onofre in Southern California, for example. When it comes to those radioactive spent fuel rods, yes, they have been placed in 73 canisters, but each one consists of only five-eighths of an inch of stainless steel between a Chernobyl's worth of radioactivity from those fuel rods and us. And then, as if that's not bad enough, a longtime activist on San Onofre issues tells us, There is no on-site plan B at San Onofre should there be a tsunami. We are witnessing climate change degrading our bluffs, blocking the actual train tracks north and south to get this waste off-site if it is ever to be repackaged into safe containers and taken away from harm's way, i.e. the water. I mean, literally, this waste is 100 feet from the water. And there's so much more that's wrong with this picture, as you will learn from Kathy Iwani of the Coalition for Nuclear Safety. Well, the more you learn about the nuclear manipulations of public trust, and of course the money, that takes place after a power reactor is shut down, and that the highly radioactive waste is not covered by any working plan that's currently in place anywhere, the more you get an uncomfortably close look at and feeling of sickness over that devastating seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we catch up with decommissioning problems and nuclear industry shenanigans at two reactor sites. From Kathy Awani of Coalition for Nuclear Safety, we learn about San Onofre's ongoing problems, Southern California Edison's ability to duck out on their responsibilities, and what a dedicated group of activists is doing about it. And Eric Epstein of Three Mile Island Alert gives us an update on current legal battles regarding that nuclear reactor which had an accident almost 44 years ago. That was a meltdown in 1979, and they're still fighting over what to do with the waste. It's a clear picture of how, when it comes to cleaning up after their nuclear mess, the entire industry is as naked as that emperor. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, Linda Penn-Scunter with the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, and more honest nuclear information 
than was collected by the Chinese surveillance balloon, we think. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, February 7, 2023, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in the U.S., where there are shades of Fukushima at Indian Point. Two years after the closing of the Indian Point Energy Center, a nuclear power plant in Buchanan, New York, public health experts and campaigners are warning that plans to discharge one million gallons of radioactive wastewater from the plant's fuel cooling pools into the Hudson River could harm at least 100,000 people who rely on the river for their drinking water. Physicians for Social Responsibility, spearheaded by Dr. Helen Caldicott, is among the groups and individuals sounding the alarm about radioactive contaminants, including the radioactive isotope tritium, which could be present in the treated water that Holtec International plans to release into the Hudson. In Japan, Tokyo Electric Power Company is is planning to release 1.3 million gallons of radioactive tritium-contaminated water into the Pacific Ocean. And also in Massachusetts, Holtec wants to dump the radioactive water from the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant into Cape Cod Bay. While Holtec claims the discharge of wastewater is typically indistinguishable from the natural radioactivity present in the environment, Dr. Helen Caldicott does not agree. She said, Physicists talk convincingly about permissible doses of radiation. They consistently ignore internal emitters, radioactive elements from nuclear power plants that are ingested or inhaled into the body, giving very high doses to small volumes of cells. They focus instead on external radiation from sources outside the body. Doctors know that there is no such thing as a safe dose of radiation and that harmful impacts are cumulative. Children are 10 to 20 times more vulnerable to the deleterious effects of radiation than adults, and little girls are twice that of boys. Same battle on three fronts. Two nuclear reactors automatically scrammed from full power after turbine trips on February 1st and 2nd. Clinton in Illinois on Tuesday, and Farley 1 in Alabama on Wednesday. Both remained out of operation 24 hours later. NASA and the Pentagon's Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, are working on a nuclear-powered rocket that could go to Mars. For more on that, here's Linda Pence-Gunter with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. Last month, I rushed through the august halls of the British Parliament in Westminster on my way to a briefing for Welsh members of Parliament on small modular reactors. Running late though I was, it was tempting to slow down and take in all the historic portraits and portals as I hurried down flagstone hallways, through heavy oak doors, and finally into the richly carpeted committee room. But the albeit fleeting impression I got was of a world completely isolated from the reality of the daily struggles most of us endure. This became even more apparent as I sat, unwillingly gagged, behind the invited witnesses from Westinghouse, Bechtel and Rolls-Royce. As one unsubstantiated soundbite after another tumbled from the mouths of these corporate executives, with their rich agenda of vested interests, read shareholders, these were met with the mildest of questions. Indeed, the Conservative Party MPs present viewed it as more of a coaching session. Give us the soundbite, they urged. What does the government need to do to make all this happen? Even the Labour MP, while gently challenging them on the obvious detriments of small, modular or any reactors, 
time and cost, given, as she pointed out, climate change is very much here now, politely did not expose their utter hypocrisy. It was, after all, not a room in which arguing was on the agenda. What it was, was an eye-opener as to exactly the kind of false propaganda our elected officials are continuously exposed to and swallow wholeheartedly. This is who they listen to, the corporate elite, in this country bearing gifts as well, often in the form of generous campaign contributions. What was happening in that room in Westminster was also utterly pointless. Sitting there, listening to 90 minutes of valuable time, squandered in the stubborn pursuit of learning something more about a completely futile technology that has zero applicability to the climate or the immediate jobs crisis, it struck me that this was yet another symptom of humanity's general malaise. Or is it something worse than that? Being hell-bent on wasting time and money talking about something entirely irrelevant, no matter what the empirical evidence that should dismiss the continued use of nuclear power out of hand, must surely be a sign of some kind of madness. A few weeks later, that same presentiment was re-evoked on reading a headline in the Washington Post. U.S. works on nuclear-powered rocket, it read. This is not an entirely new story, but an update on the plan to use thermonuclear propulsion technology to power a rocket to Mars. There are so many things wrong with this. The premise is that not using a nuclear reactor to power the rocket will mean it will just be too tediously slow for human passengers to endure, a journey of seven months. With the reactor on board speeding the rocket on its way, the journey to Mars could be cut to a mere three and a half months. Well, that's worth it then. Never mind that rockets have a nasty habit of sometimes exploding on the launch pad. And never mind that do we really need to spend billions of dollars right now trying to get maybe three astronauts to Mars when we have a planet called Earth that desperately needs every dime and dollar available to save it? There is another agenda afoot here, of course, and it's a military one and the sinister battle for who controls space. If you thought shooting down the Chinese spy balloon last week was exciting, that was child's play compared to what is planned for NASA's nuclear reactors in space. This includes being able to power satellites to become more agile in maneuvering away from enemy satellites. Using nuclear propulsion will achieve that. But what other consequences might result from a host of nuclear-powered satellites buzzing around in space? It's no surprise that the Space Force, created for warfighting in space, is involved in all this. And of course, taking its cue apparently from the mess we've already created on Earth, NASA wants to place nuclear reactors on the moon as a power source. But for who or what exactly? Will we plant the US flag there while we're at it and claim a new military and strategic frontier? The signs are ominous. And what about all the radioactive waste? Will we be boring deep holes in the moon to bury it? Or will we simply jettison it further into deep space? It's bad enough that the oceans are already our dustbin. Now space is to be our new nuclear waste frontier. While all this was going on, evidence from yet more research poured out about how completely unnecessary it is to use nuclear power for anything now or in the future. Looking at every kind of power demand, including energy consumption, electric vehicles and commercial transport, then applying solar, wind, nuclear, heat pump, storage and other technology, Nuclear power was repeatedly eliminated from the mix for increasing costs without increasing reliability. And yet governments here and in far too many other parts of the world press on inexorably with plans to continue the use of nuclear power or develop new nuclear programs, despite all the evidence that this is, to understate it, a very bad idea. 
I'm Linda Pence-Gunter with Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's this week's hot story. Thanks, Linda. On the website, we will be linking to two articles, one from the Washington Post entitled, They Handled Nuclear Missiles, Now They're Getting Cancer. It's about the growing number of missileers, as they were called, service members tasked with manning the nation's nuclear missile launch control centers who have been diagnosed with cancer, many of them with lymphoma. And an article from the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, there is no alternative. U.S.-Russian nuclear arms control must restart now. Over to Japan where voices continue to be raised and are intensifying against the Japanese government's and Tokyo Electric Power Company's plans to dump 1.3 million tons of radioactive wastewater from the Fukushima site into the Pacific Ocean. Henry Puna, the leader of the Pacific Islands Forum, recently wrote in The Guardian that continuing with ocean discharge plans at this time is simply inconceivable given how directly it once again discriminates against and will likely seriously harm the health of the peoples of the Pacific. Puna reminded readers that the majority of our Pacific peoples are coastal peoples, and the ocean continues to be an integral part of their subsistence living. Victims of years of atomic testing, Pacific Islanders are rightly not ready to be dumped on yet again but the region will once again be headed towards a major nuclear contamination disaster at the hands of others. The 100-member American group, the National Association of Marine Laboratories, expressed its fervent opposition in a strongly worded position paper last month, saying that their opposition is based on the fact that there is a lack of adequate and accurate scientific data supporting Japan's assertion of safety. Furthermore, there is an abundance of data demonstrating serious concerns about releasing radioactively contaminated water. Others who have protested vociferously against the radioactive tritium-contaminated water to be released into the ocean are the countries of China, South Korea, and the vociferous alliance of Japanese fishermen and anti-nuclear activists. Also in Japan, 149 errors were found in an examination of the Kashiwazaki Kariwa Unit 3 reactor in Niigata Prefecture in northwest Japan. The documents are under review by the Nuclear Regulation Authority before the 30th year of operation of the Kashiwazaki Kariwa reactor, which is currently shut down and has not yet applied for an inspection to restart operations. And lawyers filed an appeal to the Supreme Court of Japan against a not guilty verdict for three former executives of Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, over the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster. The lawyers took action after a Tokyo district court acquitted the three executives of charges of business negligence resulting in death and injury. Further on the international scene, in Turkey, There have been no reports of damage to the Ikuyu nuclear power plant after two large earthquakes struck Turkey earlier this week. Note that that is no damage reported, not no damage. And given that this report was issued by the International Atomic Energy Agency less than 10 hours after the first earthquake at a magnitude of 7.8 occurred, It might be prudent to assume that the examination at that point was cursory, and we are awaiting any update to that information. 
as regards Ukraine, Energo Adam reports that Russia is importing workers from the Kalinin nuclear plant, located 200 kilometers or 120 miles northwest of Moscow, to Zaporizhia in Ukraine, where there are six nuclear reactors. The movement of the workers is intended to cope with an acute personnel shortage, but word is that the Ukrainian staff are refusing to help train them. As we've learned from nuclear engineer Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education and other guests on this show, every nuclear reactor operates slightly different from others, so skills learned at one need to be at minimum tweaked to be able to work at a new one. Systems may be similar, but they are not exactly interchangeable. Also regarding Ukraine, Russia has warned that U.S. delivery of depleted uranium arms to that country would be akin to the use of nukes, and they would regard it as the use of dirty nuclear bombs against Russia. The Biden administration has reportedly refused to rule out sending DU, depleted uranium anti-tank, munitions to Ukraine. DU weapons have been linked to birth defects, miscarriages, and cancer, and can contaminate terrain, just like it happened in Yugoslavia and Iraq, specifically Fallujah. In Belgium, the Deputy Prime Minister, Petra de Souter, has reaffirmed that the current federal government does not plan to abolish or fundamentally change the nuclear phase-out agreement law, first signed in 2003, to shut down the country's nuclear reactors by 2027. At the same time, Belgian nuclear reactor Tehenge 2 was shut down on January 31st because experts found many thousands of hairline cracks in the pressure vessel, which could lead to a catastrophic accident. In Finland, the old Kyoto 3 nuclear power reactor has again postponed a restart of test production after maintenance. The unit has been under construction since 2005 and faced several technical mishaps, which sparked costly delays and a lengthy legal battle. Startup is now purportedly taking place on March 15. And on Friday, January 27, the World Health Organization suddenly updated its list of medicines for use in nuclear emergencies. This report sets out for countries and governments how to develop and maintain a national stockpile of specific medical supplies that they say can lower risks and treat injuries caused by radiation. This marks the first update in the medicines list since 2007. We'll have this week's featured interviews in just a moment. But first, in one month, we're coming up on what I call Nuclear Anniversary Alley. Six weeks that mark the anniversaries of the three worst nuclear reactor disasters to date. Fukushima on March 11, Three Mile Island on March 28, and Chernobyl on April 26. These dates are dog whistles to the nuclear industry to unleash their PR hounds of hell, their hacks and paid flunkies. The goal? To flood the media with their propaganda about nukes being wonderful, clean, green, safe, the cure for climate change, blah, blah, blah. The few honest articles or op-eds that those opposed to nukes might be able to get out are immediately slammed by paid naysayers and bots meant to drown out the anti-nuclear voices. As a result, the ordinary citizen hears the hypnotic drones of nukes, good, and fall in line, 
well-programmed to parrot surgically implanted talking points that short-circuit common-sense opposition to this deadly technology. That's why Nuclear Hot Seat is here and why you need it. To cut through the financially-backed pro-nuclear shills and their talking points so that you know what's going on for real in the nuclear world and what you can do about it. We help you know how to stand up to the pro-nuclear tsunami that's coming up by providing verifiable facts, perspective, credentialed authorities, and footnotes. And we don't wait for anniversaries to get the word out. Nuclear Hot Seat is here for you every week, backed by an unrelenting perspective and fresh information. But we cannot keep doing this without your help, which is why right now would be a perfect time to support us. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the red Donate button to send us a tax-deductible donation of any size. And know that however much you can help us out, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here are this week's featured interviews. Once a nuclear reactor is shut down, there follows decommissioning, which has a whole series of nightmares of its own and no end in sight. This week, we bring you up to date on two of them. First, San Onofre in Southern California. We speak with Kathy Iwani. She is co-founder of Coalition for Nuclear Safety, who works closely with San Clemente Green and Public Watchdogs. Formerly from Japan, she and her family moved to Southern California in the immediate aftermath of Fukushima. Note that when Kathy refers to songs, she's not talking about music, but using what got passed off, a cunning little nuclear anagram for the reactors. SONG stands for San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station. Isn't that adorable? The acronym, not the horrifying situation. In the course of the interview, Kathy mentions several sources of documentation, and we will link to all of those up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 607. I spoke with Kathy Iwani on February 6, 2023. Kathy Iwani, it is always a pleasure and a joy to have you with us here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me, Libby. Great to be back. We're going to be talking about San Onofre, and a lot of us were thrilled back in 2013 when the San Onofre nuclear reactors were shut down permanently that time, we, I think, had a naive sense of relief because with the closure, the worst was over. However, there have been nine years since then. What, if anything, was your feeling when the reactors first got shut down? And secondly, what has changed in the ensuing nine years? Great questions, Libby. You were with me during a very pivotal conference, which included the former prime minister of Japan, Naoto Kan, as well as top NRC executives, top nuclear experts. And we we had a Fukushima lessons learned seminar here in San Diego, and I got to translate for the prime minister. Well, two days later, the Song's online reactors were shut down. At that time, there is an echo from the late Gene Stone. We all met the very next morning for a press conference. And he said, over my dead body, will this site become a nuclear waste dump? So nine years later, we've been involved very, very much so with whistleblowers, 
We've tried to hold the public's opinion in community engagement panel meetings purported to actually be community engagement by Southern Cal Edison. It is not a publicly run thing at all. It is completely an industry setup with puppet people on the panel, and they do not want any sort of public dialogue, which is transparent. And we are learning that here and now in real time. And it seems that you've been learning that lesson repeatedly over the last nine years. There has been no change. So much has gone wrong during this decommissioning process that it would actually take a series of full-length nuclear hot seats to even begin to scratch the surface on it. So we're going to ask you to be brief and give us the highlights or the lowlights, as it were, of what the process has been. Going back just two years to January of 2020, what took place and what, if anything, was the response? Well, it's very interesting. I have been involved with a certain group of experts, and I'm not at at privilege now to give all the names, but there's one very public person who, quite interestingly, is a lifetime nuclear expert witness, as well as nuclear operator. He was in the Navy. He is pro-nuclear, but he is a safety advocate. His name is Mr. Paul Blanche. He joined forces with public watchdogs in petitioning the NRC on flooding and tsunami concerns. It's a special petition that is the only route which someone from the public can take to petition the NRC, and it's called a 2.206 petition process. In a nutshell, in this meeting, it was very clear that they were petitioning the NRC on a lack of risk assessment for the containers that are temporary. These are called canisters, and these containers were the cheaper version chosen by Southern Cal Edison to hold this nuclear waste on site, underground, in a vertical position, 100 feet from the ocean. Now, what were they petitioning? They were petitioning that there was never any test done. What happens if there was a flood by way of tsunami? We know that San Onofre is very close to three or four intersecting fault lines. So when there's an earthquake, it's the first thing that happens. Everyone worries about a tsunami. Well, We have a study from a very highly peer-reviewed geologist. His name is Gerald Kuhn. He wrote this study, and it's damning to that site. He's a geologist, and his team uncovered mineral markers in the estuaries way, way north of the Song's site where the waste is contained. And he said, you know, he said this in 2005. There shouldn't have been a nuclear power plant built there, but even worse, there shouldn't be a waste dump there for the reasons that if you have a huge tsunami, there are a lot of risks. Now, back to this petition process by Paul Blanche and Public Watchdogs, what we're looking at is a situation in which the vertically configured canisters are underground except for the top vents. 
those canisters are cooled by way of a convection cooling system. That means it's not run on power, it's run on gravity, and it's run on the fact that heat rises out of these canisters. Well, if you were to have a tsunami, you would have all sorts of salt, sand, marine gunk, and whatever debris, we all know what happens in a tsunami, it's not just clear ocean water. One of the main petition points was that in such a case, there has never been a test by the NRC nor by Edison to ensure that once these cooling vents are blocked, they do not know what will happen to these canisters after 30 or 32 hours. We know that the heat will continue to rise and rise and rise. We know that these canisters have been scratched and gouged by the defunct and failing loading system that Edison purchased and that's also produced by Holtec. So we've got cheap canisters by Holtec, we have a terrible loading system by Holtec, and no answer from the NRC. That's just the beginning. And I'd like to point out that these canisters are made out of stainless steel that is only five-eighths of an inch thick. What I like to use as a visual on this is that I work on a MacBook Pro computer. If you shut the lid of the MacBook Pro and turn it on its side, what you've got for the body of the computer is five-eighths of an inch. That's all between you and the highly radioactive plutonium-contaminated fuel rods that are left inside the canister. It has been approximated that each one of these canisters holds a Chernobyl's worth of radioactivity in it. So we are looking at how many, 70-plus Chernobyls possible on the coast of California? 73 canisters. However, at the Song site, there are many, many more canisters made by other vendors, for example, Arriva, and those are situated horizontally. And so they are not uh, convectionally cooled, as are the Holtec canisters. In January of 2021, there was a cell phone alert of a possible tsunami in the San Diego area, which is just south of where San Onofre is located. By the way, for people who aren't familiar, when Kathy says songs, it stands for San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station. Doesn't mean we have anything against music. It just means that that's the acronym. I hate it. I just call it SANO. Yeah. Or in SANO. In January of 2021, there was a cell phone alert of a possible tsunami in the San Diego area. The tsunami never materialized, but there were concerns at the time, which you and Paul Blanche wrote into an article. What were your concerns at that time and what happened as a result of you speaking out in this way? Lo and behold, it was only a one inch tiny little reverberation from this earthquake in the Tonga sent waves across the Pacific and officials in Hawaii reported that tsunami waves nearly three feet. Well, at San Diego Harbor, we had waves of more than half a foot, but that doesn't really give you a tsunami in the true sense of the term. So I immediately reached out to Paul. And this is the first time I said, you know, I've been watching your petitions to the NRC. I said, look, can you speak to this fact that there is no on-site plan B at San Onofre should there be a tsunami? We are witnessing climate change degrading our bluffs blocking the actual train tracks north and south to get this waste off site if it is ever to be repackaged into safe containers and taken away from harm's way 
i.e. the water. I mean, literally this waste is a hundred feet from the water. He wrote an opinion in the Times of San Diego and it generated a lot of comments. And I loved that at the bottom of this article, we were actually going head to head with the technical PR staff at San Onofre and they couldn't answer these questions. Basically, the final opinion was handed down from NRC, but also handed down from Southern Cal Edison. And that was that a breach of one of these canisters due to a tsunami or overheating or anything beyond design basis is not credible. I am being facetious, but the NRC and Southern Cal Edison required to go by NRC rules. First of all, they're telling us that an earthquake is not credible. They're telling us that a breach of one of these containers is not credible. They're also telling us that a tsunami is not credible. And finally, any damage caused by the cooling system, which would be blocked for these canisters because of a tsunami, is also not credible. So what does Paul Blanche do? He teams up with public watchdogs and he goes to the NRC again and they file a presentation and a petition which says, hey, you are vested by Congress to interpret your own regulations. You issue regulations based on nuclear and nuclear safety in the United States. Now, because you and only you are vested with the power to interpret your regulations, please explain to the public how such an answer of not credible, again, in quotes, is explainable to the public. This was not explained to Paul, not explained to the public. And we are sort of on a run here because I was just sort of pulled into this saying, now wait, how is this even possible? Going on, the NRC changed their policy, apparently because of a lack of public confidence in them for their ability to be so closely aligned with their licensees. That means with nuclear power plants that need regulation, quote unquote. They um, often, if you are not familiar with the NRC, they will rule by exemption. So that means, well, we won't hold you to this one rule, but instead you can offer up another solution and they sort of rule by waiver and rule by exemptions. It's very, very rare that the NRC says, sorry, you're not hitting our regulation here. Go back to the drawing board and figure out something else. Here we are in a nutshell. This presents the problem with public confidence in an organization tasked with the safety of the public as it relates to nuclear. I recall hearing years ago that the NRC gets a major portion of their funding from the nuclear industry as a result of them providing these services on site and these inspections and all the rest. And I forget the percentage, but what I'm remembering is somewhere around 80% of their budget comes from the nuclear industry. That's correct. I've heard 79%, but yes, that's correct. 
So that would give them very little incentive to slam down on these entities, these utilities, these nuclear organizations that are really responsible for them having a budget because as each one of these closes down, they lose money, they have to downsize, and they become less important. So in a way, it is in the best interest of the NRC to keep all of these enterprises going. Would you agree with that? Thank you for connecting the dots, Libby. That's exactly, I agree, yes. You're saying that the NRC changed something about their meeting structure. What was that about? They, in recent years, have come up with new policy to satisfy public dialogue. And this policy encourages credible members of the public and credible organizations to meet in public with a full commission to discuss issues. I am assuming safety issues. So I have this documentation. What it is, is to enhance participation in NRC public meetings. We then, myself, Paul, public watchdogs and a whole uh, consortium of other involved parties got together and we said, well, great, let's approach the NRC. And once and for all, we'll bring up these safety concerns, i.e. flooding, i.e. all of the issues that they say are not credible and we can discuss it. Well, this was last year in March. So in March of 2022, roughly, we approached the NRC with, please let us have a public meeting. You've released these new this new policy. We'd love to take advantage of it. We were refused. Now, if, if a lifetime nuclear expert who has sat in front of the Senate, United States Senate, and testified about the Nuclear Waste Policy Act, this person also partially responsible for closing down Indian Point and and various other important issues. If this person is refused an audience, there's got to be a good reason. And so we were refused a public meeting. Then what we did is said, well, I wonder if we can at least get an audience with the chairman of the NRC, Christopher Hansen. And lo and behold, in May of last year, May 17th, Myself and other parties had a private, what they call drop-in meeting with Chair Hansen to discuss not only, hey, you guys said we can't have a public meeting with you. We are taking this opportunity to meet with you in private, and we would discuss all of our safety concerns here, but we only have 30 minutes, so we are still vying for a public meeting. So in that meeting, I've provided the, the minutes to that meeting to Libby. We discussed the lack of transparency between the public and the NRC, the lack of transparency with utilities as a result of rules with the NRC, and also the fact that the NRC is deferring to Holtec documentation of the canisters when they go to explain things to the public. As an answer to us, we want information on these canisters as they relate to safety in a situation such as tsunami. Well, what does the NRC do? They present technical specification from Holtec. This specification is including redacted information, and it's it's on their website. They are giving us something from Holtec that includes proprietary blocked out redacted information 
regarding the safety of these canisters. Now, if that isn't a red flag, it should be because you have the NRC in a way defending Holtec, where Holtec is saying, sorry, we can't give the public our information, therefore it's blocked out. All we want to know is what is plan B for public safety in the event of a terrible tsunami or earthquake at Songs. That's like asking the fox what the escape route is for the chickens in the hen house after the fox gets in. Exactly. So now we have a couple smoking guns here. We have a paleoseismic study by a peer-reviewed Carlsbad geologist who sent an email to the NRC sending an important study telling the NRC, hey, be forewarned. This is not a good place to build a nuclear waste dump for the reasons that I can prove there have been devastating tsunamis, more than one in the last thousand years, and it's just not a good place for a waste dump. Now, our team with Paul Blanche, we sent a FOIA, Freedom of Information Act request to the Inspector General of the NRC to confirm that the NRC number one got the email, number two has the paleoseismic study in their records. Lo and behold, the FOIA came up with zero. In other words, the NRC scrubbed their documents and they have no record of the email, they have no record of the study. I wonder what they are trying to hide. What have been your most recent actions in attempting to deal with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and Southern California Edison? In December, on December 16th, to be clear, I sent a heavily endorsed request letter to Edison's Action for Spent Fuel Solutions Now Coalition to their two co-chairs, publicly elected boards of supervisor members of Orange County and San Diego County, They co-chair this Edison group, which purports to work with the federal government to remove the waste to safer ground. The reason I sent it to these individuals is because they sit on the same committee, the Community Engagement Panel, which is a group that purports to commit to transparent dialogue on safety concerns with the public at songs. I sent a request letter that was heavily endorsed by academia, by local mayors, city councilmen, and several members of Representative Levin's task force team on songs nuclear waste. This request was to allow the public choice expert, Paul Blanche, and a couple of other individuals to hold a presentation for the community on these safety concerns regarding flooding and regarding tsunami that the NRC thus far and SCE, Edison thus far, has not addressed. It took them two weeks. They never responded. I sent it again on January 12th. They refused. They say that the NRC already answered all of our questions. No, The NRC did not tell us what credible is, and they did not provide any answer for our original requirement of a peer-reviewed study to be done on these canisters. So here we are. We were refused any audience with the public 
and we refused any audience with the NRC and we refused any audience with the community engagement panel. That's pretty much a grand slam. Yeah, so that's a grand slam with a lack of transparency. We are here today. We are putting all of our chickens in one basket and we are preparing for our own public meeting to address these with experts on a panel. We are continuing our public outreach and I really appreciate you, Libby, today asking to amplify this concern because when it comes time, we will have our public meeting online, live stream for the public. We are also inviting Southern Cal Edison and we're inviting the NRC. If you were to, in very few words, characterize your dealings over the last nine years with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and Southern California Edison during this never-ending and probably never will-end decommissioning process, what would you say? How would you characterize it? Evasion, deflection, cutting down the messenger who just wants a question answered. Here's hoping that not only will you get that answer, as somebody who lives in Southern California, I'm impacted by this, but what we need are facts. What we need is the truth and not this shell game and shill game that's going on. Precisely. Kathy Awani, thanks so much for all of your good work for all of these years and for coming on as my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Much appreciated. Thank you, Libby. Then, as often happens in the bonus round, which is what I call the chit-chat after an interview, something will pop out that I think you deserve to hear, as is the case with this exchange with Kathy, on a few additional dangers that didn't make their way into the main interview. The weight of what the train tracks were built to be able to sustain is not enough for the weight of what would be not only the canister with the fuel in it, but the travel canister on top of that. The overpack. Yeah, right. exactly. And then the thing that no one, this is so stupid, Libby, you won't believe it. These canisters I'm talking about, well, they can't be transported by turning it over because the cooling will stop. Need to be up. Now check this out. There's a bridge that this, any truck, if you weren't going to use the train lines, Any truck needs to go under. We were thinking, let's just get it away from the water, you know, just anywhere but away from the water. It won't go under the bridge there because the canisters are vertical. It's like, how stupid can you be? I'm pretty sure Kathy's last statement was rhetorical. Kathy Iwani is co-founder of Coalition for Nuclear Safety, and we will have links up for the documentation she mentioned on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode number 507. For our second update, we talk with Eric Epstein of Three Mile Island Alert. Even though it's been 43, almost 44 years since the nuclear meltdown at Three Mile Island, the worst commercial nuclear reactor accident in U.S. history, the fight over what to do with its radioactive remains remains. It continues with no end in sight. It's a glimpse into a future that every community with a nuclear reactor will have to face. I spoke with Eric Epstein on January 27, 2023. Eric Epstein, great to have you back with us here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. This is about an update as to what's happening with the Three Mile Island decommissioning process. Eric, you have said 
that what they have in place to clean up the plants is a bad cleanup plan. Why do you say that? Well, we're talking about TMI-2, which was damaged during the accident in 1979. Sitting alongside it is TMI-1, which is owned by another company, and it also has to be decommissioned, but they have not submitted a plan. We're opposing the current plan for TMI-2 because it is deficient. We argued our case at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission last week, and the plan is just not well thought out. The accident occurred in 79. Defueling ended in 92, where they took most of the damaged fuel to Idaho. One of the points of contention is they just don't know how much damaged fuel is left. They don't know how much reactor debris is present. And we feel that they're not prepared to conduct the cleanup. So they want to do the cleanup of TMI-2 in three phases. And the basic issue here is that the company, TMI-2 Solutions, bought the plant and is arguing that they want to regularize TMI, normalize TMI. Basically, what they argued before and what they argued last week is that TMI-2 is no different than any other nuclear power plant, which couldn't be further from the truth. It's severely damaged melted core. In addition to that, there hasn't been a human entry in the basement. What we think is going on is that in order for the company to clean the plan up, they have to show that they're making some progress. And why that's important is they can't access the decommissioning fund, which is about $900 million. So we're going to do this dance where they put a plan. We think it's inadequate. By the way, as part of the plan, they're really not sure where the waste is going to go. They're going to transfer it now temporarily to Three Mile Island Unit 1. They haven't had their casts approved. And on top of that, this is perhaps the most disturbing. It's really never been done before where one company transfers radioactive waste to another company. So we have a company with not a lot of experience, with an undeveloped plan, and with really no place to locate the waste. I know that probably sounds astonishing, 43 years after the accident, but we thought this case, we weren't really sure how the NRC would react, but apparently this case may take some time. We filed some new contentions, which are objections to the plan, and the company has until mid-February to respond. So honestly, Libby, I wasn't really sure what would occur when we filed this case. And because the case has gotten more complex, we've hired Lynn Burnaby, who's a very experienced nuclear whistleblow attorney, to handle the case. So at this particular point, nothing is going on at Three Mile Island Unit 2, and there's nothing likely to go on in the near future. And unless they're able to create a plan where they're able to remove the waste from the island, we'll have to continue to litigate this case. Is there any way for the public to have input on this to hopefully sway it or influence one way or another? And if so, how could they do that and what should they be asking for or demanding? I think there's a couple opportunities here. At the NRC, it's you know pretty futile. Uh, you, you have a process that's more or less a kangaroo court. However, you're obligated to pursue that process. In the event we don't prevail, we have the ability to appeal. For regular ordinary citizens, there was a comment period that has expired, but we also have a new governor. So this is a really good opportunity to let Governor Shapiro know how you feel and that you'd like 
43 years after the meltdown at Three Mile Island for there to be a competent cleanup plan that removes the fuel from Three Mile Island. I mean, Three Mile Island is just an awful place to store radioactive waste for a short period of time, let alone indefinitely. What makes it so bad? Probably the worst place to locate radioactive waste is an island in a river that empties into the Chesapeake Bay. I mean, this is kind of like, you know, radioactive waste storage 101. Because there's nowhere to take the waste, the people that own TMI-2 are going to have to take the waste to TMI-1, which is really playing a nuclear shell game. And the new facility that was built, which is a radioactive waste facility, was built on a former parking lot. You know, this is just a temporary juggling act, which is totally irresponsible. Of course, if you have been tracking Three Mile Island, you may know initially there was permission to store the waste in Idaho, and that no longer is an option. Idaho no longer wants to take anybody's waste. Our our spent fuel, damaged fuel, was taken for, quote-unquote, research purposes, and the governor of Idaho now wants that waste removed by 2035. And do they know where it would be removed to? Well, it's not coming back to Three Mile Island, but what that does is it closes out the option to, to ship our radioactive waste to Idaho, and it calls into question the agreement with TMI-1. We had an agreement uh, with the Department of Energy that has been basically broken. So if that's going to be broken and we're going to store waste on the island with a private company, we don't have a lot of confidence that that agreement is going to be respected. So we're in a perpetual state of anarchy when it comes to storing the damaged fuel from Three Mile Island. This is not a good place to be, and uh, it's surprising this is where we've arrived 43 years after the accident. In this process, what's next for you and Three Mile Island Alert? Well, you know, we have to respond legally. You know, we filed contentions. The last contention we filed is very strong at the Susquehanna River Basin Commission, which regulates the amount of water power plants can receive. We've proven that TMI-2, the damaged plant, has access to no water. You can't clean up a nuclear power plant without water. So I suspect as a subset of this case, and one of our contentions before the NRC is that, look, they don't have a plan. The plan they have has no water. I think we're going to be talking about how they get water to clean up the plant. Right now, they have no access to water. They don't have water infrastructure. I know that sounds ironic since they're an island in a river, but you're not allowed to just take water out and then dump it in radioactively. So in a lot of ways, we're back to 1980 when one of the initial cases we litigated was when the company wanted to dump 700,000 gallons of radioactive water into the river, and we blocked them. Now we have a plant that has no water for a cleanup, and obviously they have nowhere to take the water after a cleanup would occur. So we're kind of in a state of suspended motion, Libby. It's disappointing and disserting because you'd think of any plant, you know, would have the ability to store radioactive waste because of the special nature. It'd be Three Mile Island. But the end of the story may be that the damage fuel from Three Mile Island winds up on top of a parking lot on Three Mile Island. Eric, this is a story that seems to have no end, and we will trust that you'll keep us informed. Hey, have a great weekend, and thanks for checking in. Eric Epstein of Three Mile Island Alert. And we'll have a link up to his website, tmia.com, on our website, 
NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 507. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. Following the devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria, we checked in with Turkish journalist Pinar Demirjan, who has been Nuclear Hot Seat source in that part of the world for many stories. It's good news. She and her family are well and safe. May it continue. And the missing Australian radioactive pellet has been found, but there was a marvelous multi-panel cartoon by First Dog on the Moon dealing with this. The exciting adventures of the adorable tiny capsule, Perens Radioactive. Thought you'd enjoy that? So it's up on the website under this episode. Last week's Nuclear Hot Seat number 606 interview with Greg Mello of the Los Alamos Study Group has proven to be seismic in its impact. Following Nuclear Hot Seat, Greg was interviewed for the Santa Fe New Mexican that generated well over 100 comments on their website, to which he has responded not once but twice, and of course there are further comments as well. So this has turned into a real kerfuffle. Too bad the reporter, when citing as his sources both Greg's writing and an interview, neglected to mention Nuclear Hot Seat as a source of that interview, or at least a red flag alerting him to the fact that Greg was available and did want to talk about nuclear weapons as regards Ukraine. I guess he didn't get the memo about you can use the material, but you've got to cite the source. And Daniel Ellsberg's book, Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner, is being made into a documentary entitled How to Stop a Nuclear War. And the good news is that Hollywood A-lister Emma Thompson is going to be doing the narration. Here's hoping they get it up and out very soon, because we need it. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, February 7, 2023. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, nears.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, thebulletin.org, hollywoodreporter.com, santafenewmexican.com, commondreams.org, inrag.org, brusselstimes.com, zawaya.com, washingtonpost.com, gigi.com, nikkei.com, the brain-dead cubicle drones who write propaganda releases for world nuclear news, and the captured and compromised by the industry they're supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Our thanks as always to Linda Pence-Gunter for the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it's easy to set up. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down for the yellow box, put in your first name and an email address, and shazam! Every week you get one, only one email with the link and a short description of the show's content. Or, if you listen to podcasts a lot, sign up on your favorite podcast channel because we're there. In truth, we're everywhere. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help. Anything you can do, we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2023. Libby Halevi, Nuclear Hot Seat, and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as you cite the program, 
the website. That's not so tough, is it? This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that every nuclear reactor is a dirty bomb on the ground and there are no plans that exist to permanently safely store the waste. There you've got it, your nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.